I received this in the mail here at the church office a couple of weeks ago. It's an invitation to my 10-year high school reunion. Okay, 20-year? All right, 35, my 35th class reunion. See, we were the Tigers. But isn't it refreshing to see a tiger, Paul, in a color other than orange? And the people of God who aren't from Clemson said, amen. I was surprised by the power this little piece of paper had over me. I opened it and I immediately went to look at myself in the mirror. (laughs) And I thought, well, it's not exceedingly bad on the wrinkle side, but the hair color, whoo. And then I looked down at my stomach. I thought, man, just one month to get this thing toned up. Isn't it ridiculous? Is it ridiculous to have thoughts like those, even for a fleeting moment? And I promise it was just a fleeting moment. But in that fleeting moment, it was as if the last 35 years of my life were just erased. And I was back in high school and back to those powerfully formative years. And all of us in this room have experienced or are experiencing them now. And we remember all those insecurities and all the effort that we put in trying to to craft an identity for ourselves as we figured it all out. All the things we did to be accepted, to to fit in and to stay in. And those years seem to be ground zero for us. No matter how old we get, it's the place to which we always seem to return. Everything after those high school years either seems to be an attempt to reinforce that identity if we liked it, or it's an attempt to to distance ourselves from that identity. For all of us, you know, identity is a, it's a fluid thing. It's much more like water than it is like cement. It's not fixed. It's changing. We, we, we rework ourselves and we rechannel. We're uncertain. We're insecure. We continually wonder what other people think about us and how we compare to everyone else. Right? Yes, right. But God... He's got a better reality for all of us than that. He has an identity for us, and he has a future for us that is fixed and certain. We read in Ephesians 4 this morning in the bulletin that God has made provision for us to know Christ and the whole measure of his fullness so that we will no longer be tossed back and forth and blown here and there. But instead, you and I can be secure in Christ And when we're secure of our identity in Christ, we can make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake. You and I can and must do amazing things, even shocking things, because we are certain of our identity in Christ. I hope we'll be convinced of that as we come to the word of the Lord this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to take them out. And turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter. And when you found your place, I want to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. 
The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word, for revealing yourself to us through your word, making yourself accessible to us that we can know you. Thank you for the truth that we've read this morning. We ask you now, Spirit of God, to give us understanding of that truth, more understanding of who you are, and more understanding along with the ability to be the people that you have called us to be and to do the things that you've called us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. You know, when we think about Jesus, we realize that he is not only our Savior, not only has he rescued us from the penalty of sin and purchased us for God, but Jesus is also an example for us. And we see in the human Jesus in this passage this morning, one who is so secure in his identity that he's able to do amazing, even shocking things. In this passage, the Apostle John is very intentional about connecting what Jesus knows with what Jesus does. Look in verses 1 and 3. John writes there what Jesus knew. Verse 1 says that Jesus knew that his time had come to leave the world and go to the Father. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He knew that he had come from God. He knew that he was returning to God. So God gets our attention. He gets to our hearts and then to our actions through our minds. And that's one thing that I so highly value about being Presbyterian, as often as I make fun of us. But it's the emphasis that we put on the mind. We embrace and we celebrate knowledge and reason, both of which are reflective of our God. Our God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Our God is a God of reason. At the time of creation, he spoke order into chaos. We cannot begin to know all there is to know about God. And so Paul exclaims in Romans chapter 11, Oh, oh, he writes, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I use this book this morning not as an example of what must be, but an example of what can be. This book is Puritan Exposition of Ephesians. Now, in my Bible, the book of Ephesians is contained in three and a half pages. This book is thousands of pages. And so you don't have to be able to write a book like this. You don't have to be able to read or understand a book like this to embrace the gospel, to know Jesus, and to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. But this is what you can do. This is what you can write. When you use the resources that God has entrusted to you to study and to know God more and more, the unfathomable truths of the unfathomable God, it's a good thing to do. We have to fight our culture in this aspect. I'm sure that 
all of you have had your fill up to here about bathroom legislation talk. That's all we talk about and joke about. But nevertheless, it impacts us and our ability to to communicate the gospel and the truth about the God that we can know. Our culture seems to be bent on and thereby affirming feelings over facts. It seems that we encourage people to deny the facts. Here's a fact. A fact is you are either created male or female, right? But that fact no longer matters. What's important now is how you feel. So how can a a culture continue to function based on feelings? I can say all day long, I feel like a retired person. And I am trapped in a working man's body. I feel like I'm made for the, the sun and the surf and the sand. But I have to go to work every day. Now, nobody is going to offer me a check. Say, oh, if you feel retired, go ahead and be retired. But why not? If that's how I feel in my heart, that's who I identify with. See, what happens in our culture impacts our church. And I don't say that to, to ridicule people in any way. Please hear me. I'm not trying to ridicule people. Uh, they have struggles and they, they have strong feelings. And I'm so thankful that the gospel addresses those. We all have struggles in our lives. We all have strong feelings in our lives. The gospel empowers us to overcome the struggles. And the gospel gives us the proper perspective so that we put our feelings in the proper place. But the point is, the culture impacts the church. We're going to interact with people who repeatedly receive the message, this is all about you. Life is about you. Life is about how you feel. Life is about what makes you comfortable and giving you a place to feel safe. My favorite movie in the, my favorite line in the movie, Iron Lady, about Margaret Thatcher. Have you seen that movie, Iron Lady? You know, she goes to the doctor, and the doctor, of course, says, well, how do you feel? And she says, don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I think. You know, and she's more than feeling. And let me just tell you, this is why I think this is the Lord's message today. Here's another book. This came to my office yesterday in a box of books. I didn't even look at the books, but I went over before the service to turn the air conditioning on, and, and I saw this book, and it's called Think by John Piper. Now I know what I'm preaching on, and so I opened the flap and listened to what it says. Thinking is the sturdy foundation for our easily misguided affections. If you want to feel profoundly, learn to think carefully. That's what the Lord had for me. We, we cannot feel like Christians or act like Christians if we don't think like Christians. As his writing and preaching attests, John Piper is convinced that the heart cannot embrace what the mind does not recognize as good, true, and beautiful. Found that this morning. See, that, that, that's the Lord's affirmation, I think, that we get this message. We're more than feelings. We don't have to be reduced to the slavery of them. The gospel rescues us from that. The gospel elevates us from that level to which sin has reduced us and enslaves us. And the gospel sets our feet on solid ground. Is that good news? Because God has made himself knowable, we should seek to know him better and better. All the resources that God has uniquely given to a congregation like ours, we're obligated 
to use those resources to know God better and better so we can take what God teaches us to cultures and places around the world who don't have the benefit of the resources we have so that they too may know the depth, the riches of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. What are you doing to know God more? Are you just dipping your toe into the vastness of who God is? Or are you diving in deeply? Having said all that, the word that John uses here for know, it's not limited just to information about a set of facts. The word he uses also has this feeling element, experiential element as part of it. The apostle Paul uses the same word in Philippians chapter 4. He writes there, I know what it is to be in need. See, the facts were these. At times, Paul had nothing. At times, he had nothing to eat. At times, he had no clothes, no blanket to put around his body, so he was cold. In those moments, the facts are that his stomach growled. He felt the pangs of hunger and his body shivered. So Paul could just as well have written, I feel what it is to be in need. And so when you and I are talking this morning as good Presbyterians about knowing, our knowledge has to include both facts and feelings. Otherwise, our knowing won't be full-orbed. It will be flat on one side, like a flat tire. And you can't roll forward on a flat tire. So we have to have a full-orbed understanding of knowledge. It includes both facts and feelings. The truth that Jesus knew impacted his emotions, and that in turn had impact on how he treated those around him. So let's look at the, the four truths that Jesus knew in this passage. Now let me just say this. It feels a lot better here than it does outside, so you might as well relax in the air conditioning. Four of them, all right? The first one is this. Look in verse 1. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So everything else that John records about uh, the Last Supper in the upper room and beyond, it's a reaction to what Jesus knew. Verse 1 tells us what he knew and that because of what he knew, he now showed the disciples the full extent of his love. The ESV reads, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So we look here in this passage and we can't find a lame duck Jesus. Well, my time is almost up. It's almost over. I'll just chill and, and ease right on out of this world. That's not the picture we get of Jesus in this passage. No, instead, what he knew that he was returning to his father, the time had come, made him make every moment count to keep showing his love to the very end. You and I can't emulate Jesus in this because you and I don't know when our time will come to leave this world. All we know is that that time will come. Each of us, there is a time when we will leave this world. And that knowledge should make us, like Jesus, make the most of every moment the Lord gives us to keep showing the love of Christ, to keep loving to the very end. If we did know the exact time that we would die and leave this world, we might chill. 
we might say, I've spent a lifetime loving people in the gospel. I'm going to take the last year for myself, relax, travel a little, do what I want to do. No. Real life and real living is loving others for Jesus' sake. And Jesus fills up every moment loving others. What reason can we give for not having that same goal in our lives? Loving others for Jesus' sake to the very end. The second truth that Jesus knew is in verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So see, Jesus knew his position. All things were under him, subordinate to him, and he knew his power. In what we call the Great Commission, Jesus tells the disciples, all authority, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me by God. Colossians 1 describes it this way. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's the truth about Jesus, who he is, his power and his position. And so he acted out of that identity. Philippians 2 tells the story, how he left heaven. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto. And so he came to earth. He humbled himself, took on the form of a servant. He became obedient, even obedient to death, death on the cross. While he lived his life on earth, his certain knowledge of his position and his power allowed him in his humanity not to be tempted to grasp after lesser things because his hands were already full of the good things that God had already given to him. You and I, we don't have to grasp either. We have a position as well. And of the many, many, many verses I could read to you about that, I just choose this one. From 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. There's our position. We are in Christ. He anointed us. He set a seal of ownership on us. And he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Isn't that great? That's our position. We are in Christ. He has stamped us. He's put his seal on us. We are his. That's our position. He's deposited his spirit in our hearts. That's our power, our position, and our power. Literally, we could all sing, sign, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. It's true. Signed, sealed, absolutely delivered. That's who we are in Christ. That's our identity, our position, and our power. So what are you grasping for? We often find ourselves grasping for other things, but how could they be possibly be better than what the Lord has given to us, and giving us Christ and placing us in him and giving us his spirit? The third truth that Jesus knew is also in verse 3. Jesus knew that he had come from the Father. Let's be careful of our theology at this point. 
Because John doesn't mean that, that Jesus began in heaven. John, you know, just, just from reading chapter 1, he knows that Jesus is eternally existent. The Nicene Creed states it this way, And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Now, this is why commentaries like this are written, because this is a mystery beyond our ability to to truly grasp. But Jesus is begotten, not made, eternally existent with the Father. So John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 help us out in understanding what John is saying here. You know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. And then verse 17 reads, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so there it is. Jesus is begotten of the Father, sent into the world. And so in other words, while Jesus was on earth, he understood his roots. Jesus knew where he came from. And if there's any place in the world that understands lineage, it's got to be Charleston, South Carolina, right? (laughs) Old names and old money. In a sense, this is their city. You know, those people don't have to strive. They don't have to prove. They just have to be. Because of their birth, because of their name, invitations are extended to them and doors swing open to them that are often closed to the rest of us until at least we can prove that we are worthy and acceptable. And so there's a certain ease and a certain confidence that marks these people because of their lineage Because of where they originated, they don't have to prove anything. And so it should be with us as believers in Christ. John chapter 1 verse 12. Yet, this is good news. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That's our lineage. Is that good news? Born of God. We have a new identity, new point of origin, new starting place, a new beginning with God in Christ. That's your identity. And the good news is that we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to make ourselves acceptable. We are born of God, accepted by him through Christ. And so confidence, confidence should mark our lives. Ease should mark our lives, not because living the Christian life is easy, but because we're not struggling. We're not struggling for acceptance. We're not struggling for approval. It's just a reality for us because we are born of God. And so we are free to act because of who we are with great confidence The final truth, the fourth one that Jesus knew is also in verse 3. Look there. Jesus knew that he was returning to the Father. Simply put, in this verse, Jesus knew where he came from and where he was going. Home. Back home with the Father. 
And when you know where you're going, it helps you hang on while you're trying to get there. When I was in seminary full-time, Kathy and I had three children. And it was a struggle to be in seminary full-time with three children. We bought a lot of peanut butter. And we ate a lot of oatmeal, and we just prayed that they would stretch a long way. And so literally, we longed for and lived for the moments when we would go back home to see our parents. Because for us in those years, home equaled release and relief. Because there was always plenty of food, all you can eat. And I'm not talking peanut butter, I'm talking steak. There was someone to take care of the kids. Shopping trips for clothes, money for fun things, like going to see a Disney movie at the theater instead of waiting for it to come out on VHS. And yes, I said VHS. (laughs) We always left with money in our pocket to help us get us through until the next trip home. That was going home for us. And we always looked forward to it. For Jesus, going home meant this. God raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that's named. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him his head over all things to the church. Which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. For us. Going home means this. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. Can you believe it? If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That's our identity. Co-heirs with Christ. This is where we're headed. To the time and the place where what is Christ's, he is going to jointly share with us. Nothing can compare with what's waiting for us. And so it should not be a distraction to us as we make our way home. So we know where we're from. We know where we're going. We know our position. We know the power that God has given to us. And all this is truth for us to reflect on, to make us feel good in our hearts, to give us joy and happiness, and peace, to know all this is true about us because God said so. But God tells us this truth for another reason as well. And he tells us this truth to turn us, you and me, into missional people. See, that's what it did for Jesus. What Jesus knew made him missional. Look with me in verse 4. Jesus, knowing what he knew, got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel. See, John doesn't want us to miss the extremes here. He wrote them here on purpose. He juxtaposes them. The one, the only begotten of God, the one who has all power, performing the lowest possible task. And I know you know this, but just to remind you, foot washing 
Even certain slaves didn't have to do that job. It was considered solo. Only the lowest of slaves had this task. And so we are to contrast what Jesus could have done as the one and only begotten of God and what he, in fact, did do. Because Jesus was secure in his identity, because he didn't have to worry about what people thought, he was free and bold to be missional and to serve in a radical way. It didn't matter if people thought his action made him look weak. It didn't matter to Jesus if people thought washing someone's feet didn't look very kingly and he was supposed to be a king. It didn't matter. Because Jesus did what was right and good and what demonstrated and reinforced the gospel, even though it was shocking. And it was shocking. And Peter spoke the shock for all of them. Lord, do you wash my feet? And even though the shock value has long since vanished for us, because we're so familiar with this story, it was shocking. As so much of Jesus' life was shocking that he would lower himself to come to earth, but he did. Shocking that he would allow himself to be born, not in a palace, but in a stable and and laid in a manger. Shocking, but that's what he did. Shocking that the king of the universe would suffer hunger and thirst and fatigue and suffering and pain and beating and death on a cross, but he did. Because he was secure in his identity and he knew what he had come to do. And he in this is our example. So we ask ourselves, what shocking things are we willing to do for the sake of the gospel? Because we aren't concerned about what other people think. And I don't mean shock for the, for the sake of shock. That's no value there. I just mean being Intentional about asking the Lord to help us think outside of the box, the Christian box. That's what the disciples couldn't do in the upper room. It wasn't because they were bad men that they didn't wash one another's feet. I don't think they sat around the table staring at the pitcher and the towel saying, hmm, there's a a pitcher and water and a towel, but I'm not going to do it. I just think the disciples didn't see it. It wasn't in their worldview. It was never required of them to wash someone else's feet. So they didn't even think about doing it. Their world order constrained them. It boxed them in and it blinded them to the possibility of doing it. And yet, look what they missed. An opportunity to display the gospel in this way. So saying that we need to be secure as individuals. And secure as a church to be missional, the way Jesus wants us to be missional. To open ourselves up to where the Lord may lead us to minister in his name to this community. To do beautiful gospel acts for this community. Make no mistake, there is pressure in the Christian world to conform. To stay within the confines of the safe church box, the appropriate box, the dignified box, the this is the way we've always done it box. When we're secure in our identity in Christ, we don't have to worry about those boxes. We can be missional 
as individuals, and we can truly be a family on mission together because Christ is our solid rock. We're secure in him. That is the truth. And because of the truth, we must intentionally seek from him what mission we should be on, shocking or not, for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. We always thank you that you are a God who has not hidden yourself from us. Lord, you want us to know you. And so you tell us the truth about who you are. And Lord, it's so true. The more we know about you, the greater will be our love for you. So Father, I pray that you would make us be people who are committed to and hungry to know you more and more. You've given us so many resources, Lord. We thank you for them. We ask your forgiveness for taking them for granted. Lord, we look around the world and we see so many people who lack these resources. Lord, we, many in this congregation, have stood side by side with pastors who have the Bible only, which is enough, but beyond that, no resource to help them in their ministries, in their studies. So Lord, forgive us for taking for granted your blessings on our lives. Pray that you would convict and convince us now to use your good blessings in our lives. To know you more, to dive deeply into the truth of who you are. Lord, the more we do that, the more we'll love you and the more we'll be motivated to go out into this community to do loving gospel acts in the name of Jesus and beyond here, around the world. Cause us to be intentional. Help us to be open to you and even the shocking things that you might call us to do for your sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.